Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for the truth that can set us free. This afternoon, as we spend some time studying prophecy together, may it not simply be an intellectual exercise, but may we see how it fits in our lives. May we see the Redeemer Jesus through the prophecies, through the revelation of Jesus Christ, and most importantly of all, may it impact our lives that we might become shaped into his image. This is our prayer. May your spirit be our teacher and our guide this afternoon, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, a couple of words of introduction. Um, disclaimers, if you will, before we get into the study today. We have three sessions, uh, three hours each or a little less or a little more, depending on how the spirit leads. <laughs> but uh, I'm going to be assuming that we're familiar with the basics, the basics of prophecy. Uh, you know, the Bible talks about the milk of the word. You're the babe. Uh, when you first come to Jesus and you need to gradually build up your repertoire of knowledge, just like you don't jump into calculus right away. You've got to learn your arithmetic and algebra and pre-calculus, geometry, and all the rest. Uh, I'm taking a, an assumption here that most of us are familiar with the basics of the prophecy seminar materials. You know, the Revelation 13, the beast, the mark of the beast, the seal of God, the Sabbath, the end time scenario, last day events, uh, Matthew 24 and the prophecies and those kind of things. So I'm assuming that we have that foundation. Um, and, because, and, and as a result of that, I'm going to be doing a couple things. First, I'm going to be skimming the surface on a lot of the topics. I, w I like to go deep, but unfortunately, once you study the Bible, the first thing you realize is you, you can never exhaust it. You keep digging, and there's more and more and more. And if you just spend one time, uh, you know, w time studying one verse or one concept, you, we can drill three hours and not exhaust the text. And so to give you the broad sweep, to give you sort of the theme of, of you know, the concepts of the 104,000, I'm, I'm going to be sort of skipping along. And you just got to understand that as we skip along, I, I'm not um, saying that this is all there is to it. You know, I am not exhausting the subject in any way. But I'm assuming that since you have some of the basics, you know many of the basic Bible principles and, and, and stories and prophecies, that you're able to fill in the, the blanks in your own personal study, in your own review, and um, et cetera. So is that a fair assumption of you guys uh, you know we don't want to you know clamp down on the spirit or in any way but um i just have to get that out front so people don't feel like hey how come you're just racing past that well i'm you know letting you fill in the blanks uh the next thing is i'm actually going to be using quite a bit of uh, spirit of prophecy quotations the writings of ellen white and i make no apologies for utilizing her writings as an inspired source of instruction Ellen G. White, I believe, was given the gift of prophecy. And she wasn't given, per se, to all the heathen, but she's a gift given to the Seventh-day Adventist movement, and so we should utilize her. And I'm also going to utilize her writings in a way that, unfortunately, hastens our study along. There are a lot of things that we can dive in and, and prove from the Bible, and I think we need to be able to do that. But for the sake of time, I'm just going to pull from her commentary of the Scripture, to elucidate and just 
make the point and move on. So in no way does Ellen White replace the Bible. We're just utilizing her as the commentary to just help us get through uh, some of these concepts. And so related to that also is this idea of um, the progression of truth. Um, this, th these three parts are going to be linked together. They're three distinct topics, as you'll see from the, from the Bible, about the 144,000, but um, they're related. <laughs> so I'm not trying to guilt you into staying here all three hours, because if you decide at a break you want to go check someone else out, you're still going to be, you know, uh, my friend, and I'll still appreciate you guys, but I'm just telling you, you're going to miss out on some of the connecting linkages. So you might leave and like, oh, you know, I didn't fully understand that. Well, we're going to be building, and I'll try to make mention of some of those things, like, hey, we're going to come back to this, so keep that in mind. Thank you, gentlemen. Samson, with the stack of chairs, okay. Um, and we've we're, we're going to be going through this study sort of hopefully in a blended manner where there's going to be some, there's some level of academic study, okay? I want there to be some solid Bible study, but at the same time, I want this to be a, a spiritual study, a spiritually enriching uh, time of understanding the scriptures. Prophecy is not just facts about history, it's not just interpreting symbols. It's not just, you know, knowing that this event happens and then that event and then this happens after that. And it's not just intellectual exercises, okay? Prophecy is given to us with a spiritual purpose. There is a Christ in the middle of the prophecies, the apocalyptic prophecies. Oh, the seven last plagues, is Jesus in the middle of that? Well, actually, he is. And so as we study the 144,000 together, one of my goals is to be able to reveal Christ. Reveal Christ in the prophecy and also as someone that we can uh, associate with through our own personal Christian experience. So I think that's enough preamble. We're going to get started. Go ahead. Come on in. Come on in. You guys are more than welcome. So the first hour, we're going to be talking about the 144,000, the servants of the living God. Second hour, we're going to be talking about the seal of God. The 144,000 are the ones who receive the seal of God in their foreheads. And then the last hour, we're going to talk about the first fruits, this concept of the first fruits. And all we're doing, we're just taking three qualities, attributes of the 144,000, and we're just going to study those three. So we're not studying all of the 144,000. Just three concepts. All right, so let's get right into it. And I hope my clicker works. Let me give you some context about the book of Revelation. But the book of Revelation is divided, essentially can be divided in two. There are 22 chapters in the book of Revelation, and it's not exactly divided in half. But if you take the first 14 chapters, Revelation 1 through 14, or 13 actually, you can make that as the first half, and then from 15 to the end, 22, that's like a second half. And if you look before Revelation 14, you see a very interesting picture of the church. We see the seven churches, the seven seals, seven trumpets, the great controversy, I hope you guys there can see, the great controversy summary from Revelation 12 through 14. And what we see here is a picture of a struggling church. If we're going to take the perspective of looking at God's people in this period of church history or, or the book of Revelation, 
prophecy, we see that the, the church is in a state of unrest, of indecisiveness. The church is struggling. Because the seven churches, you remember, the church starts off as, you know, the wonderful apostolic church, and then it goes down into apostasy and compromise, and then finally the church ends with Laodicea. And Laodicea is not a good picture of the church. Miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You think you have everything, but you don't know that you lack what's most important. So the seven churches show a church sort of up and down like this. And then you take a look at the seven seals, and the first four seals happen to be the four horsemen of prophecy. The white horse, the red horse, the black horse, the pale horse. And just those four seals, we see the church, he's on the white horse, he's going forth conquering and to conquer, and then the red horse, they're persecuted as blood, bloodshed, and then black is compromise and pale is death. Church is struggling. Seven Trumpets, we don't talk about that as much, but uh, similar story, great controversy, summary, war in heaven. We talked about that this morning with Pastor Doug. Revelation 13, we see the beast, the image of the beast, the mark of the beast, 666. We see all these things in Revelation chapter 13, and it concludes with the statement, who is like unto the beast and who is able to make war with him? Have mercy. It's a difficult place to end. But then comes Revelation 14. But let's skip Revelation 14, and let's go to Revelation 15, the second half of the book of Revelation. From 15 onward, I'll just make this statement, the church is victorious. Okay, Revelation 15 and 16, the seven last plagues, and guess what? God's people are not affected by the seven last plagues. They are victorious. And then the judgment on Babylon, that, that harlot, drunken with the blood of the martyrs, who made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, all this stuff. Christ comes on the white horse in chapter 19 and then chapter 20, 21, 22. That's our favorite part, right? The millennium, the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. That's where we want to be. So in short, Revelation chapters 1 through 13, the church is struggling, struggling, struggling. Revelation chapter 15 to 22, the church is victorious. No more struggle. Where does this whole scenario hinge? Revelation chapter 14. Okay, Revelation chapter 14 is the fulcrum. It's the hinge, the pivot point upon which the entire book of Revelation sits. Before 14, the church is sort of... After chapter 14, the church is flying high and victorious. So what's in Revelation chapter 14? Well, first of all, Verses 1 through 5, we see the 144,000. We're going to talk about this, these passages uh, more clearly later. We also see the three angels' messages. We talk about this a lot, right? Saw three angels flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them, dwell on the earth to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, give glory to him. And then Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And if any man receive the mark of the beast, he shall receive the judgment of the beast. Okay, so three angels' messages... And then the conclusion of Revelation 14, we see the two harvests. And we're going to talk about that later as well. So Revelation 14, what does it show us? The 144,000 and the three angels' messages are God's final answer. Okay, God's final answer against the challenge of the dragon, the beast, and his image. Revelation 13 concludes, who is able to make war with the beast? 
Who is like unto him? Well, God says, I can. And I'm going to show you my secret weapon. My secret weapon is in Revelation chapter 14. It's a group of people called the 144,000. And the message that they bear are the three angels' messages. And once the 144,000 stand up, once the three angels' messages are given, all of a sudden the entire scenario of the rest of the book of Revelation changes. The church just goes on winning and winning and winning and winning, and then Jesus comes. Can we say amen to that? So Revelation chapter 14 is critical. But let's take a look real quick at Revelation chapter 15 to see the description that God gives about this group of people called the 144,000. 15, Revelation 15, verses 2 and 3. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. These are they who have the victory over those that people have been saying, who is able to make war with him? But they have the victory, we see. Verse 3, and they sing the song of Moses, the what? Servant Servant of God. Okay, we're going to come back to that thought in just a minute. And the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. So the 144,000, they're the ones that have the victory. They're the ones that sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and of the Lamb. They sing a new song that no one else can sing. Okay, so this is still a little bit of introduction, a little more introduction from Ellen White. I'm just going to throw this out there right at the beginning because I know everyone, probably all of you, and now, I, now that I say this, you're all probably going to not come back the next hour. Okay, that's fine. I just need to say this. Let me just read the quote and I'll make my point. It is not his plan. This is from the book uh, First Selected Messages, page 174 by Ellen White. It is not his plan that his people shall present something which they have to suppose which is not taught in the word. It is not his will that they shall get into controversy over questions which will not help them spiritually, such as, such as, who is to compose the 144,000? Oh, this, those who are the elect of God, will in a short time know without question. Now you might be thinking, now that's odd. She said, you're not supposed to suppose who's going to compose them. Well, yeah. Like, I'm, I have no business saying you're not a part of the 144,000 and you are. You see what I'm saying? Like, we're not to go around and, and say you are and uh, you're not. That's, that's, not our, that's not our job. The Bible does not reveal who they are. But there's more to it than that. Back in the time of Ellen White, when he, she fir- had her very first vision, you can read about it in the book Early Writings, she saw the 144,000. And uh, there was an interesting theory back then called the shut door theory, which means there, you know, there would be no more people coming into the uh, believers, among the believers to be saved and all this kind of stuff. And Ellen White didn't really teach that as a prophet. Um, but there was that con- misconception. And so the people were wondering, you say 144,000, but we only have 50,000 believers. How can there possibly that be that many? 144, whole thousand? Like, that's like three times as many as the 50,000 that we have now. So people are like, that's got to be a symbolic number. Fast forward, the year 2012, and people are like, 144,000? How can there be so few? That's got to be a symbolic number. 
You see the irony of what happened? So what, how does this counsel apply? Whether it's a symbolic number or not, it's not revealed. I mean, do I have my personal opinion? Well, yes, but that's not what's been revealed. And so just out front, I'll just say, in this seminar, I'm not going to be making any uh, explanations or attempts to explain whether it's going to be a literal number of people, literally 144,000 and no more, no less. Neither am I going to be trying to argue that it's a symbolic number, be it more or less. That's just, I feel that's just not the best use of our time together, especially based on our counsel here. So if that's clear, let me hear you say amen. amen. So if you want to come up and talk to me about, you know, if you have your own ideas about 104,000, it's okay. You know, I think it's fine for us to, to, to think and to use our brains, but that's not the substance of the message. Because quite frankly, I think sometimes when we think about how can there possibly be just 144,000, we have this idea of like maybe uh, it's going to be really, really hard. There's a fear involved. Like the time of trouble is going to come, and if the 144,000 are these special people that go through the time of trouble, and, and I need to be a part of them, like I don't think I'm going to make it. If there's only 144,000, how can I possibly make it? You, you see, that kind of fearful thinking it's not helpful because true religion casts out all fear. So put that to one side. I hope that the study today will actually help um, give more clarity to, to why this is actually important, even despite the fact, despite the fact uh, that we're, we're not really told whether they're a symbolic or little number. So let's, let's get to the 104,000. Let's introduce them. And the introduction of the 144,000 actually is not in Revelation 14. That's actually a second, a second appearance of the specific group. They're introduced in Revelation chapter 7. Okay, so Revelation chapter 7, you can turn your Bibles there. We're going to read the first few verses. So we're going to start there, and then later on we'll move on to chapter 14. We're going to spend quite a bit of time in chapter 7 just to get our minds around who they are. So let's read verses 1 through 4 together. Are we there? Chapter 7. And after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed who? The servants of our God in their foreheads. Verse 4, And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed a hundred and forty and four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. There you have it, the introduction of this group. Uh, we're going to talk about the four winds. We're going to talk about the sealing the next hour. Today, we're just going to focus on the servants of God. Uh, but I do want to mention one thing about this, because it's a little personal. It's not real, really personal, but a funny story. Once I was doing a presentation and I just made an appeal. How many of you want to strive to be among the 144,000? And people, you know, they raise their hand. And afterwards, a man, red in the face, very angry, came up to me and said, Do you think these people here are Jews? Are you a Jew? And I said, No, no, I'm not a Jew. Then how can you ask them to be a part of the 144,000? And I said, uh, I was not sure what to say. And then he, he got right up in my face, poked his finger in my chest, and he said, You are a false prophet! 
And so I had to smile to myself, well, that's high praise. Thank you, thank you, for they so persecuted the prophets. I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I do think I have some fairly sound reasons why the 144,000 are not literal Jews. We could spend a whole day on this, but let me just mention two key aspects, because this is the general prevailing view about the 144,000 in Christianity, Protestantism. So I'll just throw this out there. If you look at the list of the, the tribes in the rest of chapter 7, there are 12,000 from each tribe. 12,000 in each of the 12 tribes. If you read the list of the tribes and then compare them with the list in the Old Testament, you'll realize that they're not the same. They're not the same. There are some tribes missing and there are some tribes that are added. I'm not going to get into all of that, but if you just think about this, like... There's a tribe of Joseph. Well, back in the day, Joseph was split into two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. And then Ephraim is not in the list. And then Dan's not in the list, but he was a tribe. When you start thinking through this, it's like, so we can't just say they're literal Jews. We've got to identify what tribes there are, they're a part of. And then some of these tribes, they don't, they don't match with the original tribes. So how can they be literal tribes? Hmm. That's for you to study more on your own. But more importantly, the second point is that there was a transition. There was a transition with God's covenant people. At the time of Christ, after the time of Christ on earth, the covenant was no longer upheld with Israel. The covenant was transferred to his church. So the prophecies that in the past applied to the church after Christ came, it's to the church now. Or rather, before it was Israel, now it's the church. And so, uh, and Galatians 3.29, it explains, if ye are Christ's, then ye are Abraham's seed. Okay, so if you look in the New Testament, there are no prophecies, no critical prophecies that specifically relate to Israel anymore. The temple was, or, or the veil in the temple was rent in two when Christ died. Jesus cried, it is finished. At the stoning of Stephen, Jesus stood up at the right hand of God. All of these things, the end of the 70-week prophecy, all of these things all tie into this transition of God's covenant with Israel. Now it's with the church. So Israel, I don't believe, is, is a literal, uh, 104,000 are literal Israelites. Okay? So now, the servants of God. This is really the meat of what we want to discuss this hour. And uh, I'm, I'm going to need a hurry a little bit. So, 144,000 are described as the servants of God. Let's just think about this for a moment. If you think about what it means to be a servant, and the word is sometimes translated as slave, it's the same original root word, that gives you an instant connotation, doesn't it, of what these people are like. They're servants to a master, and the master is God. And this master-servant relationship is really one of the keys of understanding this quality of the 144,000. So just keep that in mind. And I want to go to Philippians chapter 2 to start off. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, and I'm, we're going to look at Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the quintessential 
servant of God. He is our example in all things, but specifically, this passage expounds upon what it, me- what it means, how Jesus demonstrated his servanthood to his Father. Okay? This, is a, this passage is so rich and saturated, I wish we could spend more time, but we'll just have to deal with a few key points. Verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient, what? Unto death, even the death of the cross. And then verse 9 says, God has, Wherefore God has exalted him above every name. So here, Christ humbled himself, took upon him the form of a servant. Okay, he was a servant of God. So, a couple high points from here, Philippians 2. He willingly humbled himself. Christ willingly, even though he was equal with God, he humbled himself to be a servant and to be a, become a man. He was obedient unto death. We're going to hear this one again. The essence of a servant is that my life is not my own. I serve a master, and I must obey him regardless. And that's what this is. The next point, entire surrender to his Father's will. Jesus demonstrated what it meant to be entirely, completely, 100% surrendered to his Father's will. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was praying and he was struggling until great drops of blood came out of his pores. But what was he struggling about? Father, not my will, but thy will be done. Even if it means I'm eternally separated from you, I will obey. Jesus was a servant of God. And to put it another way, he demonstrates what it means to live fully for the master. When you live for the master, you recognize, I don't belong to myself. I belong to someone else. And what he expects of me is more than what I expect of myself. So to give glory to God is more important. Listen to this carefully. To give glory to God is more important than our own pursuits. Let me give you an example. Sometimes we get into situations where we are just blasted with some terrible calamity, disaster, dangerous situation, life-threatening disease, whatever. Terrible circumstance. We're in pain. We're, we're, We're struggling, and we say, God, how could you do this to me? Don't you know how much money I've given to your church or how much time I've served as a missionary? How can you do this to me? But that's revealing our own selfish heart, isn't it? We're saying, Lord, I care about my own personal pursuits, my pursuit of happiness, if you will. What right do you have to put me through something that I don't like? But as a servant of God, Jesus here, he is saying, his example as a servant, he's saying, it is more important for me to give glory to my Father than it is for me to be happy. You hear me? It is a significant paradigm-shifting frame of mind 
when we are in pain and struggling, and you can read the Bible about plenty of faithful men and women who struggled in pain and suffered righteously, innocently. Their goal in mind was not, how do I escape this? Or trying to figure out, why would a loving God allow this? Their uppermost objective is, may I give glory to my Father even though I die. That is what Jesus demonstrates. As a servant of God, he became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. And here's the kicker. We are to have the same mind. Let this mind be what? In you. you. And where's the mind? (laughs) Obviously, it's right here. And the seal of God, we're going to talk about in a minute, in the forehead. Interesting. We're going to shift gears a little bit. I think we need to bring Christ into this picture because he shapes everything else. But we're going to be taking a look at some companion scriptures, companion books, chapters, that also are related to the book of Revelation because Revelation is an apocalyptic book. It talks about apocalyptic prophecies. And there are other apocalyptic books in the Bible. And so before we jump into our concordances and, say, and look at every single verse that says servant, 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 and we you know, create a Bible study based on that, we need to look more carefully at books that are correlated, correlated with Revelation. And of course, the book of Daniel, the book of Revelation, they're like, peas in the pod, peas and carrots. But also in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, Christ is giving a discourse about the second coming. The disciples ask, you know, what about the temple? He says, I tell you, you know, the temple, not one stone will be left upon another. Disciples come to him privately, tell us the signs of your coming and the end of the world. Matthew 24, you remember? Uh, the, the prophecies about wars and rumors of wars, pestilences, famines, and this gospel must go to the whole world. All that is Matthew 24, but 25 is a continuation, is a continuation. So in Matthew 24 and 25, and also the book of Daniel, we're going to look at several stories. We all like stories, and I, know, I think I know why God chooses to communicate with stories. is so that he, he gives us a word picture, something easy to remember. And in this case, pictures, word pictures of what servants of God are like within the context of end time, last day events, apocalyptic prophecy. Okay, so you understand where we're going. Matthew 24, 25, and then the book of Daniel, trying to identify the servants. First parable of Jesus is Matthew chapter 24. I think this one may not be as familiar, so let's turn there. Matthew 24. At the end of that chapter, he gives this parable, beginning in verse 45, about two groups of servants. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 45, it says, Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he comes, shall find so doing. Verily I say unto you that he shall make him ruler over all his goods. But and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, My Lord delays his coming and shall begin to smite his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunken, The Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looks not for him and in an hour that he is not aware of and shall cut him asunder and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We see two groups, right? Both groups identify themselves as servants of God. But one is identified as wise and faithful servants. The other one is the wicked or evil servant. So let's talk about the wise and faithful servant first. 
What are some of his characteristics? I'm just going to point out a couple of them. Well, he's called the wise servant. He possesses wisdom. Look in Daniel. Keep your finger here in Matthew. Let's look in Daniel real quick. Daniel chapter 12. To see the significance of wisdom. Okay, wisdom in prophecy. Daniel chapter 12. We're going to be looking in verse, uh, verse 9 and 10. Daniel 12, verses 9 and 10. The angel messenger says to Daniel, Go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. There's a prophecy here that's been closed up and sealed. Verse 10. Many shall be purified and made white and tried, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall do what? Understand. Okay. So the wise... According to Daniel, within the context of prophecy, the wise are those who understand the prophecies. Specifically, in Daniel, the prophecy that was sealed. The prophecy that was sealed was the 2300 days, the evening and the mornings, and all that. I'm going to do a little advertising, a little commercial break at no extra cost. On audioverse.org, there's a sermon that I did recently called The Wise Shall Understand. Entire sermon probing that those verses, Daniel 12, 9 and 10, discussing what does it mean to, to be wise. Um, and so I'm going to spare you the lecture now. But suffice it to say, the wise and faithful servant in Matthew 24, they understand the prophecies. That is depicts wisdom, understand the prophecies. And that goes right in line with the other uh, characteristic. They give meat in due season. Let's think about this for a moment. Uh, we are often told that God's word is the bread of life, right? Paul says to his uh, followers, ye were, when ye were babes, I had to feed you with the milk of the word. But when you grow strong, you ought to be able to handle the meat of the word. So this, these servants, they're giving the truth, meat, the message but is meat, not just any meat, not just any food, it's food in due season. So in other words, it's food, specific types of food for a specific time. Specific meat for a specific season. What does that mean? <laughs> there are certain messages in the Bible that are uniquely designed for specific times. An example is the message of Noah. He had the truth for his time. Get in the ark. A flood is coming. Is that still truth today, that there was a flood and that people should have gotten in the ark? Yes. But is that the specific, most relevant and important truth for our time? Not exactly. I mean, as in the days of Noah, I know Jesus said that. But the message that Noah preached specifically, present truth. When Elijah stood before uh, King Ahab, and the people, choose ye this day, present time demanded a present truth. Okay? That's the term that we use. Present truth. The truth uniquely needed for the present time. Ellen White actually has something to say about this very concept. Early writings, page 63. There are many precious truths contained in the word of God, but it is present truth that the flock needs now. 
I have seen the danger of the messengers running off from the important points of present truth to dwell upon subjects that are not calculated to unite the flock and sanctify the soul. Satan will here take every possible advantage to injure the cause. But such subjects, okay, she's going to explain, such subjects as the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days, the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus are perfectly calculated to explain the past Advent movement and show what our current position is. Establish the faith of the doubting and give certainty to the glorious future. These I have frequently seen were the principal subjects on which the messengers should dwell. Present truth. And guess what? Those messages were uniquely given to the Seventh-day Adventist movement. The wise and faithful servants they have an understanding, right? They're wise, so they understand the prophecies, and oh, lo and behold, the prophecies they understand, 2300 days, sanctuary, three angels' messages, happen to be meat in due season. The meat that's needed in this season, right now. That's what we're told. So, the wise servants, they possess wisdom, they understand the prophecies. They give meat in due season, they preach the present truth, okay? And then they are so doing when the Lord returns. Jesus says to occupy till I come. These people are fervently engaged in ministry, in preaching, in sharing, and in studying for themselves until Jesus comes. So there is also the wicked servant. I just want to make a few points on this. He is a backslider. He claims to be a servant, but he is called the evil servant. He is a servant by name only, but not at heart. Now, is it possible to be a Seventh-day Adventist by name, but not at heart? Uh, well, I think we know about that all too often. And he says in his heart, my Lord delays his coming. And I feel a sermon coming on, and I'm going to have to hold my pants. My Lord delays his coming. Do you think that this person is saying that? While being a church member, while claiming to be a servant of God, he's heralding from his housetop, from his Facebook status, his Twitter posts, Jesus isn't going to come anytime soon. Quite frankly, the servant that says this says it in his heart. That's what the Bible says. How do we, in this room, how are we sometimes guilty of saying the same thing? My Lord delays his coming. Perhaps we think that about our education. Uh, the Lord isn't coming for a while, so I'm going to pursue this course of study. I'm going to run up my student loans, and I'll pay it off by the time I retire. And what of us, well, all of a sudden, it's like eternity has not even made the map. Like we're not even looking in the same direction. And how often do we say, Lord, please don't come until I get married? I've been married for two years, amen? But I remember uh, there was a time when I thought that very thing. We think these thoughts and we make these choices and we do all these things and by the demonstration in our life, by the priorities we set in, in what we choose to pursue, we might be saying in our hearts, my, my Lord delays his coming. And if we're saying that, guess what? Are we going to be a part of the servants of God that receive the seal of God in their foreheads? Somehow, I don't think so. 
he eats and drinks with a drunken. It's fine to eat and drink, but he is more concerned with affairs of this life, and he loses sight of heaven. I'm going to resist the urge to preach some more. But let me just say this. Claiming to be a servant, claiming to be a servant doesn't make us one. That's the point. So let's transition now to the next parable. Matthew chapter 25, the very next chapter, Christ now talks about the parable of his servants and the talents. Matthew 25, 14 through 30, and I am running low on time, so I'm going to assume that we're familiar with the story. I hope that's all right. But the the master has three servants. He's about to leave on a long journey, and he gives them each varying amount of talents. One he gives five, the other he gives two, the other one he gives one. The one with five talents goes out, he invests it in the market, he works hard, and he gains five more. The one that had two talents, he works hard, he gains two more. The one that had one talent, what did he do? He buried it. And when the Lord came back, he, you know, he, he honored the first two, but the one that hid his talents, the Lord condemned him. We understand that story, and we remember. So let's just hit a couple of the highlights. I think this is sort of the, you know, the review of our primary Sabbath school lessons. Faithful servants are those who improve their talents, not hide them in the earth. I think that's, that's pretty the high order moral of the lesson, right, when you read the parable of the talents. Don't hide your talents. God has given you something precious. Use it. Improve upon it. That's what faithful servants do. Here's another point. It's not the amount of talents you've been given, but it's what you do with what you have. So faithful servants are faithful in even the little things, the small duties. So suppose that that servant who only had one talent, he went and he invested it, and he came back and he had one more talent. That's a 100% rate of return. And and that's exactly the same rate of return as the other two guys. So even though he only had two at the end of the story, don't you think Jesus would have still honored him? I think that's the point of the story. It's faithful in that which is least because he that is faithful in least will also be faithful in much. So I want to drill a little deeper now in this story because here we're going to be unearthing one of those key themes and ideas that's going to run all the way through all three hours that we're going to spend together. So keep, uh, keep your antennas up. Christ's Optic Lessons, page 25, there's a chapter called The Talents. Ellen White actually expounds upon the entire parable, and it's, it's power-packed. If you read that, that story and Ellen White's commentary on it, it's, it's incredible, the depth of what Christ was communicating. To set the context a little bit, uh, she actually explains to us something uh, important. It says here, Christ on the Mount of Olives, this is Christ's object lessons, page 325, on the Mount of Olives has spoken to his disciples of a second advent to the world. He has specified certain signs that were to show when his coming was near and had bidden his disciples watch and be ready. Again, he repeated the warning, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man comes. Then he showed what it means to watch for his coming. The time is to be spent not in idle waiting, but in diligent working. This lesson he taught in the parable of the what? The talents. So what I'm trying to say is that the parable of the talents, Christ's original intent 
his original intent, not an external expectation grafted on. His original intent for this story is, is to show what it means to wait for Jesus to come. Okay? So, you know, we talk about the the talents and we think, okay, I'm a wonderful piano player. I need to, you know, improve this talent. I'm a good artist or I'm a good singer. Wait a minute. There's an end time application. And that's what we want to talk about. So I'm going to share a few other passages uh, from, this pa- uh, from this chapter of Ellen White. And this is, um, this is where things get a little interesting. She writes, page 329, Christ's Object Lesson. She says, the talents, however few, are to be put to use. The question that most concerns us is not how much have I received, but what am I doing with that which I have? That's the pivotal operative question. What am I doing with what I have? Okay. The development of, what's the next word? All. I think I highlighted it up there. All our powers is the first duty we owe to God and to our fellow men. No one who is not growing daily in capability and usefulness uh, is fulfilling the purpose in life. In making a profession of faith in Christ, we pledge ourselves to become, what's that word again? All that is possible for us to be as workers for the master. And we should cultivate every faculty to the highest degree of what? Perfection. Perfection that we may do the greatest amount of good of which we are capable. So there, this, is, this is full of goodness. I'm, I'm not going to be able to wrangle all of it together. But a couple key points. It's not how much we've been given. And the talents, if you read the story of the talents, and if you study the Bible, the talents is not just one thing. Okay? It's every good gift that God has given qualifies as talents. And the question is not how much I've been given. We look at preachers like Pastor Doug Batchelor or Mark Finley or other people, and we think I've been given maybe, you know, one one-hundredth of a talent, and he's got ten. So... I'm nowhere near as worthy or as eligible of God as them. But that's not the point. The point is, what are you doing with what you have? And there's a key word here that I think throws us off a little bit. And it's that P word, (laughs) perfection. And as we go through our study, we're going to see this word again. And so right at the onset here, I want to throw this out there uh, as we discuss perfection because it's going to come back. I don't want to get into a whole theological, you know, back and forth on the intricacies of perfection, what it is, what it's not. But I do feel like for the sake of not leaving too many questions in our minds as we go through, I think I need to address this somewhat. First of all is that I believe that when we deal with the subject of perfection, we need to tread with extreme humility. Because we are treading on the edge of what has not been clearly revealed. We remember the quote early on, Ellen White said, don't discuss or don't suppose or get into controversy over things that's not clearly revealed. And I think perfection is one of those things, and here's the reason why. We are imperfect. I think we all agree with that. 
And so for, for us who have been imperfect and have never been perfect, to look at perfection and to make a judgment upon it, I think we need to be careful because I'm not so sure we're fully capable of doing that. Just like asking a young child to evaluate what true maturity is. It's a similar concept. How can you ask someone who's not mature to tell you what is mature? It's a similar concept, but yet nevertheless, I do want to say that from the Bible and from the spirit of prophecy, the concept of perfection is, is all over. It's there. It is discussed. And so there's plenty that is revealed, but we just need to be mindful not to, ex- not to expound and to, to, to be dogmatic in a way as though we know it all. Because we as finite beings, we simply cannot fully comprehend the infinite. So that's my little disclaimer about perfection. But let's look at this passage again. The perfection that we're talking about here is not reaching or not attaining a certain quota, a certain number of talents. Okay? Because this very passage is saying it's not, the whole question is not how many talents you have. It's what are you doing with what you have? So it, perfection is not like, okay, I need 100 talents, and I'm down here, and uh, that person is, you know, 95% of the way there. So let me just, you know, let me just figure this out. You know, I just need to improve this area and that area, and then I'll get to be perfect. No. Perfection is not about the number of good works or the number of mistake-free days that we've had. No. Perfection has to do with the quality of one's experience. It's talking about what you have. What are you doing with what you have? The key is that word, all. Okay? The development of all our powers is the first duty. So perfection has to do with this idea of all. Okay? We've used, we use this term sometimes about... Um, the light that we have, the light that we've been given, or the knowledge, or the truth, or information, what have you. Well, those are talents that God has entrusted to you. And so the question is not, do you know it all? The question is, what are you doing with what you do know? If you are living up to the fullness of what God has revealed to you, if you are entirely surrendered in all your ways to the best of your knowledge, as far as God has led you, guess what? In that phase of your experience, you're perfect in the eyes of God. Let's take a look at a passage here. And here it is. The essence of perfection is the key word all. Okay? All or entire or complete, that is the essence of perfection. Let's look at Matthew 19, 21. Uh, I think we're still in Matthew. Matthew chapter 19. It's the story of the rich young ruler. You remember the story. Rich young ruler comes running to, to Jesus. Good master, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, what? Keep the commandments. Jesus, um, Jesus explains, you know, what the commandments are. Verse 20, and the young man says to him, all these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? And so this person here is saying, I have kept the law. Perfectly. 
what else do I have to do? Jesus says, verse 21, if thou wilt be what? Perfect. Perfect. Go and sell that thou hast and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Luke 18, verse 22, that same, it's the same story and Jesus actually explains, he says, one thing thou lackest, go sell all that you have. The essence is, I don't have all of you. So in terms of your behavior, young man, fine, that's good. You're honoring your parents, you're not lying, you're not stealing, you're not killing, good. But that doesn't mean you're perfect yet. Because I don't have all of you yet. The issue is all. And I think there's a question, I'm sorry, I, I'm really short on time, we can talk a little later. I'm, I don't mean to shut you, shut you out, but I am running low on time. So let's continue here. The talents. Same chapter, 331. A noble all-round character is not inherited. It does not come to us by accident. I mean, we all understand how that works. It's not by accident. A noble character is earned by individual effort through the merits and grace of Jesus. Comes from Jesus. God gives the talent, the powers of the mind. We form the character. That's the word, character. It is formed by hard, stern battles with self. Conflict after conflict must be waged against hereditary tendencies. We have to criticize ourselves closely and allow not one unfavorable trait to maintain, to remain uncorrected. So we have talents. We work with Jesus, and he helps us form the character. Okay, another one also from the same chapter. Be ambitious for the master's glory to cultivate every grace of character. And notice, in every phase of your character building, you are to please God. There are phases, okay? In every phase, are you living up to what God has revealed to you? And in that phase, you're pleasing to God. And as he reveals more, are you now still obeying and following to the, all the light that you have? You can please God in that phase. And this says, this you may do, for Enoch pleased him. For Enoch pleased him in a degenerate age, and there are Enochs in this our day. There are Enochs in this our day. When I think about that, it's always remarkable to me because Enoch walked with God and he was not. He was taken. He was translated. And it seems as though there are people today that in the eyes of God are like Enoch. Wow. Wow, that's pretty amazing. Continuing. The heavenly intelligences will work with a human agent who seeks with determined faith that perfection of character. That perfection of character, that's a theme that's going to come back again. That complete surrender to Jesus, which will reach out to perfection in action. To everyone engaged in this work, Christ says, I am at your right hand to help you. There you have it, the promise. The promise that Christ does not leave us to attain this ourselves. He offers his hand to help us. Okay. Let's continue real briefly. Talents are pursuing excellence. In the story of the talents, it is about pursuing excellence in the whole life, giving the master our all. That's the summary of the talents. Okay. Servants of God, they pursue excellence in character, and they don't quit. Neither do they think that they've arrived. Okay. The guys that with the ten talents, he doesn't think that he's attained some higher status. He continues to do so. Here's the passage here, Chrysopic Lessons. A character formed according to the divine likeness is the only treasure that we can take from this world to the next. And in heaven we are continually to improve. 
How important then is the development of character in this life? So the development of character, this is a theme we're going to come back to, and we see here, it continues in heaven. It continues. It does not stop when Jesus comes. There's continual growth. And so that asks the question, so how important is it here? If it's going to be continued there. So review of Matthew 24 and 25. Servants of God, they understand the prophecies. They're, they're wise servants. They preach the present truth. They work faithfully until Jesus comes. They occupy till he comes. They're not preoccupied with the affairs of this life. They do not say in their heart, my Lord, delays is coming. And they are faithful in even the little things, even if it's just one talent that they've been given. And they are actively pursuing excellence in all aspects of life with no intent of stopping. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. We can take a break now, and then I'll have to finish the last few slides of this presentation in the next hour. Or I can continue on and finish, and we'll have to start the next one a little later. Is there a preference? Should I continue or should I stop? Continue. continue? Yeah, finish go ahead and finish. I don't want. If you need to, if you need to move on to the next one, go ahead and go. Um, I don't want to keep you from missing the next one if, if that's what you want to do. But there's, we're going to be taking a slight transition here to the Book of Daniel, and I'm just going to finish the last few slides before we go on to the next presentation. All right. Thank you guys for sticking with us. All right, so we've looked at Matthew chapter 24 and 25. I just want to take a few moments to look at Daniel 3 and Daniel 6, okay? And we're just going to go through this very quickly because I think we know the story. In Daniel chapter 3, we have ancient Babylon. In Nebuchadnezzar, he builds the golden image. And there's a legislation given to the people to bow down and worship the image. I think this story should be coming back, right? There's a union of church and state power. So the church and the state, they're working together to coerce this worship. And there is a death decree. If you don't bow down and worship, we've got this really nice, cozy, fiery furnace we can house you in. And then the faithful Hebrews actually spend time in the fire because they won't bow. And then they're delivered. So let's think about this for a moment. Is there going to be a Babylon at the end of time? In the book of Revelation, yes, there is. Is there going to be an image at the end of time? The image of the beast, yes. Is there going to be a legislation about Worship, yes there is. Is there going to be a union of church and state? Yes there is. Will there be a death decree if you don't worship? Yes there is. And will the faithful people of God have to spend time in the fire? They go through the time of trouble, don't they? But will they be delivered? Praise God, we know the end of the story. They will be delivered. So just like the three Hebrews in Daniel chapter 3, we're going to see the same events happen at the end of time. Let's look at Daniel 3, verse 26 and tw through 28. It says, The king answered and said, Oh, I'm in the wrong, wrong chapter, sorry. Chapter 3, verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the mouth of the fiery furnace and spake and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you, what, what did he call them? Servants. Servants of the Most High God, come forth and come hither. 
Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came forth from the midst of the fire. And you know the rest of the story. They don't even smell like smoke. The ropes are burnt off. No harm has come upon them. They're delivered. But they were willing to die in that fire. They were obedient unto death, just like Jesus was. And so this is a story, an illustration of what servants of God will look like at the end of time. The 144,000 will go through a similar experience. In Daniel chapter 6, we know the story, Daniel in the lion's den. A decree goes forth. No man might worship anyone except the king for 30 days. Daniel doesn't care. The plottings by his enemies to try to trap him, and they decided the only way to trap him is by the law of his God. And this is very interesting. The law was urged by the people. It wasn't the king. It was the people. The final mark of the beast, the image of the beast, and all that final crisis, if you read the book of Controversy, it's very clear. It is coming from the people. The people demand it from their elected officials. So I always get a smile when I hear, the President of the United States is having a secret behind closed doors meeting with the secret societies of the world and the Pope and all of this, and he's going to enact the Sunday law next week. So don't go to Walmart. That's not how it works. According to prophecy, the people clamor for it. They expect it from their elected officials. And because elected officials want to keep the position, they cave. That's what we see in the Book of Great Controversy. Anyway, I'm not going to get into all that right now. But there is a union of church and state in Daniel chapter 6. Story of Daniel in the lion's den. There's legislation again regarding worship. There's a death decree and there's also a specific date of execution. We see that that's also repeated in the Book of Great Controversy, there's a specific date of the execution, and Daniel actually had to spend time among the lions. But at the end, he was delivered. So let's flip over to Daniel chapter 6, and let's take a look. Daniel chapter 6 and verse 19. Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste unto the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried with a lamentable voice unto Daniel. And the king spoke and said to Daniel, Oh, Daniel, what does he call him here? Servant, Servant of the living God. Is thy God whom thou servest continually able to deliver thee from the lions? And we know the story. Yes, O king, live forever. The Lord has delivered me. Daniel was obedient unto death. Now, quick question. How did Daniel and the three friends get to the point of being able to morally, at the core of their being, say, I would rather die in the fiery furnace or be eaten by lions rather than disobey God? How did they get to that point in their experience? Well, let me just explain it to you very quickly. They developed their talents. They were given talents. Just like in Daniel chapter 1, Daniel was given the talent of his health, and he improved upon it by saying, I will not eat of the king's meat or drink of the wine at his table. I will be faithful to what is healthful to my body. And by doing that, he developed more talents so that when he get to, came to the point of life and death, he would rather die than disobey his master. Servants of God in Daniel chapter 3 and chapter 6, end time scenarios. So let's do a quick review. These stories are prophetic of very similar events that will transpire in the last days. The servants of God would rather die than disobey God. Okay? They refuse the mark of the beast and they do not bow to the image of the beast. And they go through the time of trouble, but they are preserved and they are delivered by God. So Revelation chapter 7 verse 3, we say that these are the servants of God. 
And to summarize what we've discussed today, so far, the servants of God, they have the mind of Christ. That's in Philippians 2. The servants of God, they give meat in due season until Jesus returns. They understand and they preach the present truth. The servants of God, they improve their talents. They develop their characters regularly. The servants of God, they would rather go into the fiery furnace than bow before the image. They would rather be thrown to the lions rather than worship man. And of course, servants of God are those who receive the seal of God. And that takes us to our next hour. So let's bow our heads for a quick prayer, and then we'll take a break. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and that as we have skimmed the surface on several stories, may you help us to get a glimpse of what it means to be servants of the living God, to be faithful unto death, to be willing to live for our Master's glory despite our own personal pursuits and interests. Lead us the remainder of this day and guide our study in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.